Section 36 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read to you by J.P. Lyle. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. St. Xavier's. But, my dear reader, there is still a chapter of this story which remains untold. Perhaps you'll reproach me. Perhaps you'll ask, wherefore has this chapter been left till now? Why has an episode been allowed to drop as if we're out of this tale? It may be a chapter, like a day of sorrow, but having in it rays of genteel gladness and a sunset of brightness and joy. Verily, this whole bulk may be one overclouded tragedy of sadness. Nay, had not this chapter had to be written, perhaps this whole sanguinary drama would have never been acted or its history have to be told. Destiny is merely a fiction and a name. We cannot mold the world to our poor wills and little aims, for oft as man may be made the instrument in higher hands to higher ends, the making of history is the function of vaster omniscience, a more universal omnipresence than we, in our most splendid dreams, or the most magnificent flights of our circumscribed imaginations can conceive. For when man postures on the world's stage, too oft he forgets how infinitesimal a thing he is the greatest of his kind, but as the grass which springs up into life to flourish only for a span, or as a leaf which must be green for a season and then fall inevitably to the ground, an atom among the countless atoms of his race. Even the great round world in which we live out our short lives is but one among a universe of countless worlds. The wiser we become, the more completely do we realize our own insignificance in relation to infinite time and space. But leaving such reflections as these, we will return to our tale. It was a peaceful, placid Sabbath morn. Over the wide expanse of the landlocked southern Irish bay known as Cork, or Queenstown Harbour, and upon the gentle slopes of its hills, valleys, and lochs, as they came undulating to the shore, a bright and genteel sun shone softly down upon the Emerald Isles and upon its landlocked waters, making it appear for the nonce a matter of difficulty to comprehend wherefore the water too round the Emerald Isles might not with equal right claim to the title of the Emerald Sea, for on this particular Sabbath morn, the translucence of the ocean seemed to reflect the hues of earth and all creation to be pervaded by a restful, calm repose. Here and there, dotted over, and within the shelter of the broad and noble harbor, a few craft, mostly grain-laden merchant vessels, lay at anchor, and like land and sea they lay at rest. On the quays and the wharfs, at the mouth of the River Lee, which, with the many villas on its picturesquely rising banks, connects Queenstown with the city of Cork and round the Catholic places of worship there loitered, all more or less decked out in holiday attire, a population of idlers of both sexes and many ages, who with that ceaseless flow of prattle and apt repartee for which the Irish are so justly famed, whiled away the peaceful idle Sabbath morning hours. But among the smaller fry of the maritime world which rested at anchor in the bay, out towards its centre there seemed lazily to swing on her cable one of those ocean liners, a veritable leviathan compared with a smaller craft, and which the experienced eye readily perceived to be an ocean-going steamer waiting there for the arrival of males. 
outward bound. The Prussian monarch, for such was her name, had scarcely been made fast to her moorings ere there came alongside of her sun-dry small official and non-official craft, and several persons came on board. Among these were females of the working class whose glib and ready tongues and characteristic head attire indicated unmistakably that their origin was of the Emerald Isles, and while they offered various pretty and petty ornaments of merchandise, such as fruit, drinks, bog oak ornaments, blackthorns, laces, and relics to passengers of the outward-bound vessel, kept up, especially with the more youthful of the male passengers, a constant fire of keen, witty repartee in which the Irish tongue invariably triumphed and the latter invariably came only second best off, for it is about useless for any other nationality to enter the lists or attempt to vie in repartee with the bright and ever-ready intelligence of a bright, witty Irish girl. But whilst on the great ship, passengers and visitors were thus in barter or gossip or fun whilst away the idle waiting hours along the Queenstown Quay, an official steamer tender, the smoke lazily curling from her short, thick funnel into the cloudless atmospheric blue, lay waiting the arrival of the train from Dublin, bringing the latest outward New York and American mails, and some passengers for whom business or pleasure made it desirable to go on board the Prussian monarch at the latest possible moment ere she cut off communication with land. However, at the last train from Dublin arrived and the calm peacefulness of the day was broken in upon by the transfer from train to tender and steamer of passengers and baggage and mails. Among the several persons who might be seen hurrying from the train to the boat were two individuals whose clerical garb, shaven pates, and other distinctive marks of their order marked them as priests of the Church of Rome. Although very similarly attired and so far alike, there was a strong contrast in the physical character and appearance of the two men, the one, inevitably the younger, although appearing most boyish at first sight, perhaps on closer investigation you would have found to be some six or seven and twenty years. It might have been that the austerity of the regimen to which he had been subjected from an early age, the rigid abstinence, the continuous fasts, the asceticism, the subdual of fleshly lusts, the complete mastery of the spiritual over carnal being. It might have been that his religious zeal had stunted and subdued that which other men acquired in a fullness of physical growth. He was clean-shaven, lean-jawed, and although his features were sunken and livid by abstinence from the actual necessities which nature demands, Yet there was a clear, healthful, honest brightness in his large, truthful gray eye, which to a shrewd judge of human nature would have spoken volumes for the transparent honesty of his life and confidence in his belief. Without being contaminated by any of the Jesuitical subtleties of the church of his adoption, his soul has caught the fire of its holy zeal. Such zeal as this it is, which engenders holy, priestly lives. 
The traveling companion, however, of this youthful and guileless priest was a man of quite different mold, and although the tonsure was visible upon his crown and he had a closely shaven face and an ivory crucifix dangled from his girdle, and he wore the same sober habit of his order and the same monkish hood and cowl, yet his portly person told far less of a abstinence, far less of penances and fasts, and a more intimate acquaintance with refectory and cook. With such laxity indeed, had he observed his fasts that he was even a little inclined to embonpoint, his age, though not easy to determine, might have exceeded to the apparent five or six and twenty summers of his junior companion by a good two decades. His hair, or what of it remained since his now smooth and shaven pate had passed under the barber's hands, was straight and dark, and whereas the boyish-looking countenance of the younger priest was open and honest and without guile, his was a pale, rather sallow than livid, while his eye was dark, restless, ever observant of all that passed on every side, and keen, and it would have taken but a superficial degree of penetration to determine that rather than in asceticism, or in monkish or monastic seclusion, he had been schooled and taught in the rough and ready ways of a wicked world. Along with the others from the steam tender conveying the passengers and males, the two priests who registered respectively the elder of the twain as Father St. Vincent de la Croix and the younger was Father Leola, stepped up the gangway on the deck of the noble liner the Prussian monarch, and soon anchor was weighted and slewing around to the south. The fine vessel steamed out of Queenstown Harbor and turned her head towards the western ocean. Gradually, but rapidly, the southern rocky headlands and promontories disappeared one by one from view. The bright green slopes of the Emerald Isles faded away in the ocean haze. The fascinet rock with its lighthouse, as seen from the deck of the Prussian monarch, sunk every minute lower and lower beneath the horizon of the eastern waves, and onward, onward, onward. The great ship plowed the sea day after day. We need not enlarge upon the incidences of the voyage. During its continuance, the two priests maintained a certain exclusiveness apart from those whom they were surrounded, a separation which was perhaps consistent with their holy office and their creed. In less than nine days, from the port bow of the Prussian monarch was visible, rising from the bosom of the broad Atlantic, the long, low, brown, shelving tongue of sand known as Sandy Hook, and the next morning, after certain formalities, in place of the monotonous outlook which day after day they had looked upon, of the boundless ocean and the ever-rolling, ever-swelling deep, the Prussian monarch had reached her mornings, and on every side, on sea and land, was seen the busy life of the city of New York. There was the usual delays, and the inspection of baggage, and then the passengers of the great vessel, liberated from the luxuriously appointed water-bound prison which she had been to them for the past nine days, 
went each one on his own way of life. The two priests mingled with the busy and dirty throng which crowded the wharfs and the quays down to the water's edge of West Street, New York. But Father Saint Vincent de la Croix had not been ten minutes in the busy crowd ere, rather to the astonishment of his young companion, he was accosted by a strange, insignificant-looking individual of diminutive stature, whose status and condition was a sheer, utter anemia to the boyish-looking younger priest. But who, as the diminutive individual is already well known to the reader, we will say no other than the little ferret man, Paul Nugas. However, after some minutes converse, Father Saint Vincent de la Croix and Paul Nugas parted, and without further noticing this incident, we will accompany the two priests on their way. From its source among the Adirondack Mountains near the Canadian frontier, through Lake George and Lake Chaplin, for some 300 miles in a nearly southerly direction, the broad and stately current of the Hudson River flows along by the eastern counties of the state of New York. Although lacking in the castellated ruins and fantastic legends of the past, commemorative of the old freebooting times of the Middle Ages of European history, which led the particular fascination of their romance to the Rhine. The Hudson, in the charm of its Respirian scenery, which seems to rest upon the solitary silent reaches of its waters, its varying succession of broad expanse and straight defile, in grandeur perhaps, the Hudson even outvies the Rhine. And thus this queen among rivers flows placidly onward past wooded banks and fertile lands, till between the villages or townships of Weehawken and Hoboken, and the more populous centers of Jersey City on the one hand, and the busy world of Manhattan Island and New York on the other, it debouches and becomes lost in the greater volume of water of the Atlantic Ocean and the Bay of New York. For hundreds of miles above New York City, the Hudson River is a broad, navigable, stately stream on whose majestic bosom there ply daily among others streamers to the cities of Albany and Troy. The river boats that ply in American waters are commonly white painted, differing in aspect, construction, and shape from similarly employed craft in European rivers and bays. It was on one of these boats, known as the Princess, as she lay berthed off West Street, New York, that the two priests, Father Leola and Father St. Vincent de la Croix, betook themselves very soon after landing from the Prussian monarch in which they had crossed from the Emerald Isles. Punctual to her time, the princess backed out into the stream, turned her head to the current of the Hudson, and began her journey up the river, whose aspect we have just shortly described. As the day wore on, there were several stoppages at waterside landing stages and wharfs to take in or put off passengers, produce, or goods. The two priests maintained the same exclusiveness of demeanor towards those around them which they had evinced ever since they stepped from the shores of the British Isles. At last, however, their long water journey seemed to have come to an end. The steamer princess drew up a little wooden landing stage or wharf on the left bank of the river. The two churchmen stepped ashore and the white boat, loosed once more on the landing stage, again steamed away on her northward voyage. 
After making certain arrangements as to their scant baggage and simple belongings with apostolic simplicity, they had almost taken neither purse nor scrip. The two priests left the landing stage. They made an inquiry as to the direction, and then, quitting the water's edge, pursued on foot between groves of tall chestnut trees, a devious path up a dusty road, till at a distance of something less than half a mile from the riverbank, within secluded grounds which, in the heat of summer, would have been shaded by the tall and stately trees which stood around, giving to the place the aspect of sacred seclusion. They came to a large building which, beautiful without, commanding fine extensive views of the surrounding country, was a conventual retreat. As this building is part of a seminary devoted to the education of young ladies, besides being also a convent, and may be known to some who pursue these pages, further than to call it by the name of the convent of St. Xavier, we will refrain from publishing its name. The two priests, Father Leola and Father de St. Lacroix, approached the entrance by a winding drive through the beautiful and tastefully laid out grounds of the convent. Without hesitation, they ran the bell, which was immediately answered by a sister of charity or nun. The face of the latter was almost wholly concealed by a linen coif of spotless white drawn tightly across the forehead, surrounding and concealing from view the lower parts of the face. For the rest, she was attired in the black woolen habit and veil of her order as a nun. Although the coif which she wore did not completely conceal from view her youth and her traces of female attractiveness and beauty, neither could it hide her sad, nay, dejected, mean, and what perhaps were traces of regret at having abjured, shut out from her existence all the brightness and beauty of the world around. With all its ecstasies and joys, which surely God would have had no purpose in creating if he had not created them very bright and beautiful that men and women might enjoy. As she answered the summons, with a slight obeisance to their holy office, the nun, on observing the two fathers of the church, swung wide the covent doors and the two priestly travelers entered a spacious and lofty hall, in fact the entrance hall of the covent. On all sides were abundant evidence of outlay on needful or unneedful modern improvements to please the eye and for the gratification of luxury and taste. There were marble statuary, rich and curious vases, the walls were hung with costly paintings of religious subjects and portraits of saints, while the air was redolent with sweet and balmy fragrance of the choicest flowers. Such was the gilded portal of the whited sepulchre which led to the tomb of buried hopes and lives, the fasts and penances, the living deaths of too much and too many of those who have been deluded by their religious vows into passing beyond. The two priests, Father Leola and his elder and more portly companion, were invited by the pensive-looking sister of charity who admitted them through the entrance hall into one of four large parlors or reception rooms provided as receiving or waiting rooms for those who came on business or otherwise to this 
call it as you will, whited sepulcher or abode of love. The reception room which the two new arrivals entered was like the reception hall, a lofty and spacious apartment, beautified by all that was costly, adorned in profusion with all things beautiful that wealth could purchase, or luxury ease refinement and cultured taste could suggest or demand. Here the two priests were left by the pensive sister who retired to inform the mother superior of the arrival of two fathers of the church. They had not long to wait ere the mother superior of the covent appeared. A woman, as far as the coif and gown of her order permitted any judgment to be formed of some thirty or fifty years of age, and when the elder of the two priests, Father St. Missa de la Croix, presented to her a letter of introduction and recommendation from a well-known Irish Roman Catholic bishop, the Reverend Mother Celise, her conventual name, was all blandness, suavity, and smiles in her exertions to impress favorably to the minds, after traveling so far, of her newly arrived guests. The most anxious inquiries were made as to their voyage and their mission and their well-being. From the covet parlor, the two priests were conducted to the refectory where wine and choice refreshments were served. They were then conducted through the various parts of the establishment, and as the church pampers its fathers, were treated as honored guests. But these more material and worldly matters we will pass. The recital of this episode of our story tempts us now indeed to write with a pen of gold tipped with a priceless gem, to remove the very shoes from off our feet, to go gently, circumspectly, for the place wherefore we tread is most delicate, if most, shall we say it, unholy ground. Father St. Vincent de la Croix and Father Leola had tarried something less than seven days in the convent of St. Xavier when the former, the elder priest, became interested in certain religieuses known in the convent as Sister Agatha, a sister who, rather than in works of charity or cloistered devotion, was occupied in the instruction of the young. Although under the banner of the same faith, and under the influence of the same church, the educational and conventual departments of the convent of St. Xavier were in separate and distinct, though adjacent, buildings. But it is to be feared that the tender minds in training at the seminary attached to the convent of St. Xavier's were shown only the warm, devotional, poetic coloring of conventual life rather than permitted to see too closely the darker incidences which occur behind its veil. And we believe it a fact that few of those who even as Protestants entered its schools left without at least a strong bias towards the tenets of the Church of Rome. But these are considerations which intertwine not with the network of our tale. Even convent walls jealousy guarded portals, vows of poverty and chastity, the ceremonies of high mass, and all the phalanx of saints and imagery by means of which the church allures unwary souls within its fold cannot exclude the influence of love. Cupid is an intrusive divinity, 
and not the strongest have penoplied themselves impervious to his darts as he flits on golden wings around the tulip bells and flirts and toys and trifles till he strikes wholehearted youth so even stern penances austere vows and all the thunders and anathemas of the church with childhood's careless raillery he laughs to scorn and had cupid then entered the sacred precincts of saint xavier's had the staid priest father saint vincent de la croix fallen a victim to his wily arts and spells ye who imagine that vows of chastity and abstinence undertaken by they who assume the veil of the recluse or don the cassock and the stole of anointed priesthood can arm them against his assaults unburthen your minds of a delusion so intense but whether or not the staid and portly priest father saint vincent de la croix had been stricken by cupid's dart the presence of sister agatha seemed to have for him the fascination of a charm whether he was drawn by the saintly beauty the holy calm of her face impelled by his own love-smitten heart or influenced by some attraction more subtle or profane we will without telling leave it open for the reader to conclude at the convent of saint xavier horticulture was carried to the perfection of a fine art there were groves and gardens where the graces might have worshipped or whose solitudes might as high places have been dedicated to spiritual communion with the gods it was in one of these called the italian garden set apart mainly for the use of the sisterhood of saint xavier's that father saint vincent de la croix encountered in sad contemplative mood the nun sister agatha alone her meditations might have been of holy things or perhaps her thoughts flew back on golden wings of memory to other years when in some bright home in a world which she had abjured which now she vainly sought to forget she might have been the idol of a parent's heart or perhaps there came back to her the incidences of some undying and yet unforgotten love but whatever the meditations of sister agatha might have been they were broken in upon and interrupted by a till now unseen presence near her of no other than the priest father saint vincent de la croix sister a dime for your thoughts were the unclerical and somewhat profane words with which the priest addressed the nun oh father she replied startled at his presence oft-times the heart is sick and very very sad verily bowed down even to the dust with sadness with the consciousness of its own weary longings ah too by its own unworthiness yes by the anxieties for its future as well as by memories of the past the priest glanced curiously but keenly at the sad nun as she spoke perhaps he was too worldly or perhaps he was not too well versed in the most needful of all knowledge to a priest whose functions are the elevation of spiritual ills the care of the inmost spiritual necessities of the human heart perhaps he knew not the deepest pangs of its oft-time sufferers knew not the utterness of the solitude which may pervade its most hidden most secret most sacred depths but even father saint vincent seemed touched acutely as what heart would not as the nun gazed sadly into his face her sadness and beauty seemingly intensified by the veil and coif and the sober weeds of her order 
My sister, he resumed, should there not be joy in a heart which, renouncing all earthly ties, has dedicated itself to the Lord? Is such a consecration a holocaust of sadness? Nay, my sister, rather than bondage term it a sacrifice of love, which should be only too joyfully offered to the Lord, the sweetest holocaust that our holy church has granted the privilege of women to offer to be its bride. Father, she replied, are not you a consecrated priest, one of the Lord's anointed, pledged by your vows of sanctity, of celibacy? Then what can you, Father, pardon my boldness? What can you know of the place which the word bride occupies in a woman's heart? Tell me, my father, if cloistered within these convent walls, were they as high as heaven is high and a thousand times the thickness that they are? Think you, father, that they would shut from my heart the remembrance of my earliest, truest, purest love. Love, call it cardinal if you will. Such love is what we give to man, but adoration worship is the meed of and offered only to the king of heaven. True daughter, but your words tell me that there has been brightness in your past, that there has been worldly ties which you have not forgotten, from which you cannot sever, cannot disentangle your heart. At that moment, they gained a summer or arbor houses among the trees which formed in a summer a secluded and cool retreat. But now with the reproach of winter, the aspect of the scene was less attractive and changed. They entered and Father St. Vincent took a seat near the beautiful but sad-faced nun. Speak not, I pray you, Father, to me of a past. Past, the past. The word conveys to me a meaning which would to my God I had never known, which I were blotted out altogether from the pages of my memory as a thing that had never, never been. But sister, is there no hope? said the priest, as, taking her hand in his own, the tears arose in his eyes from, man of the world as he was, an overwhelming heart. For some moments both were silent, the priest still holding the nun by the hand. He seemed deeply saddened by her sadness, and now and again a sob broke the stillness around them. Then tell me, dear sister, he resumed, could the happiness of past days be restored? Could you live again the years that have flown? Would you recant? Would you live again the life of, of a recluse? Tell me. Oh, father, tempt me not, said the nun. You know, father, that I have taken vows. Tempt me not to recantation, to perfidy, to infidelity to my troth. And as she bent her head, hiding her face in her veil, the tears from her eyes fell fast hot, welling, blinding, burning tears. As in some of those sea-bound countries and communities where the land lies below the level of the surrounding ocean, a system of dams restrained the encroachment of the ever-threatening tide. So the barriers of an unnatural life of austerity which hedged in the life of the religieuse broke down. And the overwhelming torrent of the memories of years rushed into assert their natural place, to engulf, to overturn, to wash out all the false doctrine and delusion inculcated by a heretic faith. In the depth of her spiritual anguish, the agonized sister, call her girl, woman, child, matron, call her what you will, but all the attributes of true womanhood had been awakened. She fell upon her knees before the priest, whom the tenets of her adopted faith had taught her to venerate and prostrate her reason as if before some demigod. Oh, father, father, she burst forth. 
absolve me from iniquity, but refrain, O oh my father, from speaking of the past, of, of, of. She would have added more, but she broke down in its midst, and the tears seemed to flow from her eyes like rain. The priest sat silently by, knowing the cup of her tears and affliction would be all the sooner avoided by the copiousness of its flow. Then, as she became more composed, he gently raised her from the kneeling posture and seated her again beside him, where, although less afflicted, the great sobs now and again burst from her like the great intermittent raindrops which succeeded a summer shower. Sister, tell me this, he then asked. Were it in my power to produce proof positive that your past is not altogether strange, is not altogether unknown to me, would you choose the life of a recluse? Tell me, is it by your own free choice that you have renounced a world, a life, which once smiled around you, around a beautiful home, around youth's dearest hopes? The nun started visibly, violently at his words. Father, you know more than you choose to tell. Nay, sister. Say not more than I choose to tell. Say rather, more than I have yet told. Look, my sister, see here. With these words, he produced from the fob of the monkish gabardine which he wore and handed to her for examination. What was not else than that costly jewel which had passed through so many vicissitudes and adventures and into so many possessors' hands. The ring, the gold and sapphire heirloom of the Gonalts. For some minutes, the nun, as if affected by a magic charm, gazed at the elaborately cut stone. Perhaps the floodgates of memory would have again burst, but it seemed as if she had wept herself empty of tears. Sister, I see that the jewel is not strange to you. Tell me where you saw it last. She looked fixedly at the gem. Her lips quivered violently, but she stood silent and unmoved. At last she spoke. Father, she replied, I would keep silence, were it not that my vows compel me to withhold not the truth from an anointed priest of God. Tell me, speak, sister, am I not too forbidden by my auricular oaths, by the seal of the confessional, to utter the secrets of lives which have been entrusted to me under its sacred ban? Yet, father, no other argument would move me to the confession of where I last saw that ring. Speak out, dear sister, tell me where. Father, I last saw it on my husband's hand. The priest winced visibly as she spoke, and there spread over his face a look of surprise. Her admission seemed to dispel all the priestly, what we would call the professional manner and sentiment from him, and whereas, as previously he surrounded, cloaked himself in his sanctity rather than his manhood, now he threw off his priesthood and became man. Sister, he resumed, you mean to tell me that you were wedded? to an earthly bridegroom ere you were wedded to the father my union with the church of god as i know you were about to call it was not but a farce a delusion a sham the tone of her voice changed as she spoke from warmth to anger nay she continued i grow reckless when i think of the past rather than being wedded to the church say rather that i am a slave kidnapped by the jesuitical wiles of this accursed system which is called a religion of faith in whose false doctrines the deluded vainly trust for the salvation of their souls the priest opened his eyes widely as she spoke perhaps as much astonished at her bold condemnation of the system under which she lived as at her rising air 
But if the inmost workings of his heart could have been laid bare, we should have seen that his true sentiment was as much one of exaltation as surprise. But Father de St. Lacroix did not fail to pursue and turn to his advantage the cue which thus he had thus cunningly obtained. You mean you speak truthfully when you tell me you saw that jewel, the priest asked, on your husband's hand. Father, I say it in the sight of heaven before God, in whose sight I became an earthly bride. Then tell me, when, where, under what circumstances were you wed? Father, the story of my marriage is a sad story. I was the dotedly loved and sole child of an aged parent in a very, very beautiful English home. All the surroundings of my life taught me only innocence. I was as guileless, as free as the birds that sang, or the flowers that bloomed. And the love in my heart was that of the birds or flowers, as the birds seek their consorts, as the flowers extend their tendrils. So it only needed the presence near me of a stronger manhood in which my heart must trust, to which I might yearn and render up its love. At last it came. Bertram Gnault came to our beautiful home. Father, it would be a long story to tell you why and wherefore he came. We were secretly wed, as stolen waters are said to be sweet, so our happiness, as it was only known each to each, was all the more blissful and intense. But it was bliss too perfect and beautiful to endure, cut short ere we realize its perfection or that it had begun. For this, Father, is not but a world of sorrows, perfidy, and afflictions, the cup of which is oft-times too bitter to taste, their weight too heavy to be endured. Father, in the balances of affliction have I been weighed. But, O Father, spare me, spare me, I beseech you, the recital of my griefs, the ruthless Jesuitical priestcraft by which my life was desolated, turned from a garden as into some arid waste. And was there any issue of your marriage? Father St. Vincent asked. Yes, my son, one child. And does he still live? He does, and is now being educated at a Roman Catholic college in this country, in one of the New England states. But we have said enough. We have shown the reader enough of this not the least sad episode of our tale. The root of all the wild erratic excesses of Bertram Gnault's life. Years ago, in that bright summertime, secretly undertaken, scarcely had the intense blissfulness of Marjorie Gillingham's and Bertram Gnault's wedded happiness began, ere a ruthless wile decoyed the young wife from the lover-husband's side. But to open up all its intricacies would be to add another volume to this book. Probably, ere now, the penetration of the reader has recognized what was once Marjorie Gillingham or Marjorie Gnault beneath the saddened, embittered, coiffed, and veiled figure of the St. Xavier's nun. A feeling of intense sadness came over Father St. Vincent de la Croix. He rose to his feet, stern, hard man that he was. The story of Sister Agatha of St. Xavier's, or as we will now call her in our own language, Marjorie Gnault, seemed to have pierced his heart, but again must the veil fall. End of section 36. Read to you by J.P. Liao, Vancouver, Canada, September 30th, 2022.